This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 21st, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The debate over immigration has taken a decidedly negative turn from debating how many immigrants to allow into the country and how many more visas the U.S. should grant. The debate now centers on banning for a time immigration altogether. Cato's Alex Narasta and George Mason University's Brian Kaplan sat down with me to discuss the troubling new debate last week. What do you think is the worst proposal that has received any traction that's been uh, put out there so far? Alex would know a lot better than me. I think probably the worst proposal is a total moratorium on all immigration, just to make sure that there's no potential security threat at all going forward. And leaving aside the the problems that that would pose uh, logistically for employers in the United States, what are the what are the estimates for economic costs of, of such a proposal? So I look at a, I took a look at a paper written by Ben Powell at Texas Tech University. He tries to estimate sort of the annual cost of a total moratorium on immigration, and he comes to somewhere around two hundred billion dollars annually annually to the U.S. economy. Uh, so looking at that going forward, the number of terrorists who have committed attacks since 9-11, about 73% of them have been immigrants. So like assuming that 70 and uh, the terrorist attacks per year, there's about three casualties per year. And taking a look at the cost estimates, about $100 million for all of those attacks per year at like the uppermost bound. So an immigration moratorium at best would reduce these costs by $73 million per year at a cost of $200 billion a year to the economy under very generous assumptions. So there's really just no way that this makes sense as a safety precaution. And to look at the counterfactual, there would have to be uh, 800 successful San San Bernardino shooting style attacks each year deterred by this moratorium for it to make economic sense. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that politics is so governed by what psychologists call social desirability bias, how things sound, whereas in real life, we do things that sound bad all the time because it costs too much to do what sounds good. I mean, you know, if you were to say, well, I'm not ever you – know, like, safety is the absolute priority. Safety is the most important. Nothing else counts. To live that, you would actually have to never leave your house, sit around under bulletproof vests all the time. Nobody wants to do that even though to say I'm going to go and risk my life and my family's life to go to see Star Wars sounds terrible. But people do it because there's more to life than being safe. And if it's a small risk, it's totally worth going out of your house, risking a small chance of some bad thing happening to see Star Wars. But in politics, the very fact that it sounds bad to say there's always going to be some risk, we just have to live with it and it's not worth doing anything about it, it's almost impossible to get across because voting is not about doing. Voting is just about saying something that sounds good. And I think we see this. A lot of Republicans and conservatives rightly mock Democrats who have this view when they look at chemicals or environmental harm fracking. or frack. Yeah, fracking is a great example or global warming or sort of these other issues that say, oh, but look at all the chemicals have done. What would you do without your car? But suddenly when you turn to the possibility of any terrorist attack, they uh, you know clutch their pearls and they worry so much about, you know, there's no acceptable number of uh, attacks or no acceptable risk to deal with this. All right. So uh, Ted Cruz recently has pushed back a little bit against his proposal uh, that was to essentially say that the 11 to 10 to 12 million uh, of people who are in the United States uh, without authorization uh, could never become citizens. And uh, he he is re- referred to that as calling the bluff of people who uh, otherwise were supporting a less restrictive immigration policy. Yeah, a little history on that. In the 2013 immigration bill, 
uh, Ted Cruz offered an amendment to get rid of the legalization portion of that bill and replace it with, okay, they can stay here legally permanently, but they can never become a citizen. And he saw that. He made the argument at the time that this is a way to get this bill to actually pass because this is more politically acceptable to Republicans. These people would never vote, you know, all the usual arguments. And then on every other issue, he wanted to increase by a factor of five the number of H-1B visas and high-skilled immigration. But now in this sort of very tough primary season that seems to be focusing almost entirely on immigration, he has to backpedal this and uh, take it back a notch. I do think, though, that if he ever became the nominee, he could say, oh, well, I was just against amnesty. What I'm in favor now is an earned legalization, which is very different. If he becomes the nominee or becomes the president, I think he's more likely to backpedal after he's he's president. I think uh, when he's in the general election, he's going to have to move a little bit. I mean, they all have to move a little bit more toward the center, and I think he's going to have to move toward uh, toward supporting what he did in 2013. I think that's a more defensible position. He could still retain a lot of his uh, Republican support. Maybe not all of it. So um, on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton has had the luxury of saying almost nothing about anything. But but to clarify, uh, what has her position been and how does it differ from uh, any of the particularly reasonable Republican uh, proposals on immigration? Uh, well, Hillary Clinton has changed her position many times over the years on this issue. And what she said most recently, which I wouldn't put much stock in, is that she favors basically the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill of 2013. So, I mean, if you recall, uh, her husband was responsible for um, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant uh, Responsibility Act of 1996, which was a big enforcement bill. Uh, He opposed a lot of liberalizations in the 1990s. She went along with that, said things about that when she was senator. Now she's changing her tune. Uh, Who knows what she really believes, but the Democratic Party seems to be much more supportive of liberalized immigration generally than the Republicans. Even in even in light of these uh, attacks that have spooked Republicans so severely, uh, absolutely. I think even more so because Republicans are spooked because they can take the opposite side. Um, I mean, I mean, the, the the argument on the left wing side is that Republicans are just a bunch of bigots, and that's the reason why they oppose it. I don't think that's true, but that's the argument that's being used. So if Democrats can stand up and say, um, you know, we support it, even though there's a risk because of compassion and because of this and that, um, then they differentiate themselves. I mean, Democrats on this issue, um, I think, take a look at the risks much more honestly and openly and come to a far more logical conclusion. Broadly speaking, what are the impacts that immigrants deliver to the labor market? You mentioned the hundreds of billions of dollars that could be lost if we put a wholesale moratorium on uh, immigration for some time period. So what it, in general, what do we know about immigrants and the U.S. labor market? Right. So the main thing that we know is that people are much more productive in the first world than in the third world. You can take a third world worker, pluck him out with no additional training, deposit him in the first world, and he will be paid a lot more. Uh, so someone might think, well, maybe it's just the first world employers are nicer than third world employers, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to most economists. The reason why first world employers pay more than third world employers is because you are worth a lot more in the first world than the third world. How big of a difference is this? It depends on the country, but if you look at a country like Haiti, it looks like just moving a Haitian from Haiti to the United States increases their productivity by a factor of 20. So that's not 20%, it's not 200%, that's 2,000%. That's an an enormous increase just by moving someone from a dysfunctional country like Haiti to a country that more or less works. 
Uh, for other countries, the gain is not as large because the most countries are not as messed up as Haiti is. But again, if you just think in terms of if you could get everyone in the world outside of the countries that don't work into the countries that do work, what would happen? Pretty standard estimate is that global GDP would roughly double. Of course, you know, there's wide bounds. Might only be a 50% increase in the wealth of the world. Might be a tripling of the wealth of the world. But the gains are, you know, so enormous. And again, outside the realm, you know, like just they overshadow any other policy reform that is known to man in terms of the gains you can get. And then uh, there's a whole, and Brian's absolutely right, there's a whole other secondary sort of effect that a lot of people question like, okay, well, what happens to American workers? You know, the people who are already here, are they going to be like impoverished? You know, a Haitian may increase his income by a factor of 20, but if an American has it cut in half, you know, oh no, what, what will happen? Like, is that a cost that we have to bear? And the evidence about this, you know, there's a lot of different papers going back a long time. Uh, and basically the result is the only section of the labor market that really could suffer or has so far in the current numbers is Americans with less than a high school degree who are adults. And um, most of the other estimates are clustered around zero. Yeah, so, and, and especially previous waves of immigrants. Yeah. So that's the number one group. So a Mexican who comes in 2015 is going to compete against a Mexican who came in 1995 far more than he is against an American who was born here who is a high school dropout. And, you know, and is that just demographic similarities between oh, those oh, people? Yeah, so, you know, you know, what, like I'm, you know, I'm a college professor. When you let in a bunch of other college professors, it's bad for me, but it is good for students, good for people who actually are the consumers of education. And the same goes everywhere in the labor market. If you let in people that have very similar skills to yours, then it's bad for you. I mean, and and you know, to my mind, you know, the best way of really cutting through the Gordian knot of understanding what's going on is, uh, you know, the following rule of thumb: always focus on production. So think about something like Uber. All right, well, Uber on the one hand is good for consumers and good for Uber drivers, but bad for taxi drivers. On net, is it good or bad? Well, when you put it that way, it's pretty hard to figure it out until you start thinking about, well, in terms of you know, when is the world richer? When is more stuff being produced? So, you know, so electricity, is that good or is it good or bad that there's electricity? Well, on the one hand, we put out a lot of people, we put a lot of people out of work who uh, now their jobs will be automated. On the other hand, there's more stuff made. Is that good or bad? You know, the question is, well, does electricity increase total production? Yes. If total production goes up and the population stays the same, what happens to living standards? On average, they rise. And the same goes for any kind of technological change, goes for any kind of business innovation like Uber, and it goes for immigration as well. If you can increase the total wealth of the world, but especially increase it by a lot, then on average, people will be better off. And especially if you can increase it by enough, then the odds that anyone is going to be a loser is pretty slim. So you know, like, how, who on earth right now is a loser because of electricity? Electricity had such a dramatic effect on the wealth of the world. If you looked around really hard, you might find someone that was lost from electricity, but it would be a real chore to find them because it's such a dramatic gain. So you know, the, the, what I like to say is you know, this is not trickle-down economics. It is Niagara Falls economics. If you double the wealth of the world, almost everyone will be richer at the end. So you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to be a loser from electricity. <laughs> I, that's a, <laughs> lightning is electricity technically, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, one of the great examples, I think, to think about this is a restaurant. You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people who were very low-skilled Americans used to be dishwashers. They used to work in the kitchen. They used to work in all these jobs. What we see now is very low-skilled Americans instead are working as waiter, waitress, hostess, more highly paid jobs, and lower-skilled immigrants who don't speak English very well are doing the jobs of the dishwasher. They're not communicating with the customers. So what you see is a lot of lower-skilled Americans have been bumped up a little bit into occupations because they speak 
English because that's a very valuable skill, while a lot of lower-skilled immigrants who don't speak English work on that end. So uh, Ethan Lewis at Dartmouth has done a lot of work about this sort of complementary task specialization, as they call it, uh, in the labor market. And it's going to come up in the presidential debate, I'm sure. I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure Donald Trump has a good rebuttal to it. <laughs> but that's where you can see it, I think, most clearly uh, is uh, just like this – there's not a whole lot of competition between immigrants and native-born Americans. There is some in some occupations. You see a lot. You see it heavily. You know, I bet uh, that the wages of farm workers is a lot lower than it would be because of immigration. But generally across, you take a look like within firms and industries sort of as a whole, uh, you see Americans and immigrants working together rather than working against each other. Yeah, I'm not, not even so sure about farm workers. I think it's more likely that agriculture just wouldn't exist in a lot of the U.S. if not for, for, lo for, lo for lower price agricultural labor because otherwise we could just import the goods. Yeah, that, that's true. But in, the, some, in some of the areas where, uh, where it would be, I, I would bet um, – I'm not so sure about that, but we'll see. That's uh, a nice counterfactual. But when you take a look at like places like in the 50s when they started to let in a lot of Mexicans to work on Bracero programs, uh, there was a lot of evidence that the wages for those workers like fell in the 50s and the 60s because they were all really going into one occupation. Um, but you don't, you know, we don't know what would happen now if there were none of them. As to the uh, political nature of the claim that. Uh, Democrats want more immigrants so that Democrats will get more Democratic voters. What happens to immigrants? We've talked about this before, Alex, but it bears repeating. Uh, what happens to immigrants who come to the United States uh, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Well, there's a, there's a couple different effects. Uh, we took a look at their responses in the general social survey, which is one of the largest biennial surveys in the United States. And you can track it by immigrants and their specific descendants. And you can ask them a whole range of questions about their ideology and their political party and all these other different issues. And what we find is when you separate them out, you know, immigrants who are citizens in the United States down the line have very similar opinions to Americans on almost every one of these issues from how much welfare there should be for poor people um, to how big the military should be and all these other issues with two major exceptions. One is they're less likely to identify as Republicans, much more likely to be independents. And the other one is on uh, the broad question of should the government do more, they're much more likely to say it should. Now, that sounds bad for us, but then when you drill down and ask them, well, should the government provide more welfare? Should the government have more Social Security? Should they build more parks? Should they do more mass transit? Should there be a bigger military? Their answers on specific issues all line up pretty good with Americans on um, a lot of these issues. And that's important because uh, the only real way that they're going to directly change sort of the political system, like or in a really simple model looking at this, is if their views are dramatically different from Americans and they sort of outnumber Americans in a lot of those ways. Uh, there's also other reasons, you know, immigrants tend not to vote as much, they tend to cluster, they assimilate into the, the local sort of political scene wherever they are, uh, but we just don't see much of an impact. And then there's the effect of natives who are less willing to support a lot of government programs because they view immigrants as being the beneficiaries of them. And that's sort of one of the untold stories of this debate. Right, right. So it's striking that the largest welfare states in history have been in very ethnically homogeneous societies like Scandinavia, where everyone really in some sense feels like they're part of some common national family. And the United States has generally had a smaller welfare state. And one common explanation with some support for it is that Americans don't feel like a nation in the same way that, that Swedes do which is another way of saying Americans have, have more freedom because we don't feel like Swedes do. Yeah, there's a wonderful book by uh, 
Marx and Lipset, M-A-R-K-S, and they're two communists, and they wrote a book called It Didn't Happen Here, all these different theories about why America never really developed this a big socialist or, you know, hardcore labor party. And one of the best explanations is the working classes, because they came from all over Europe and all over the world, they all spoke different languages, had different religions, didn't particularly like each other, they would never get together to form one of these parties. And as a result, you really never had that political push. And so did the American elites who were progressive, they maybe wanted to stop immigration, but they didn't really care about helping a lot of the, you know, people who spoke different languages and had different religions there. So because of this sort of heterogeneity and diversity of America, it like Brian said, destroyed the impetus for creating a large uh, welfare state. Yeah, so it's striking that in Europe there are a lot of multicultural social democrats who feel very torn because on the one hand they love the welfare state, on the other hand they like immigration and they are worried that letting in more immigrants is going to undermine the ethos of the welfare state. Uh, but for libertarians, assuming they're right that the that the, the uh, European social democrats are right on the right on the facts, this is actually a real free lunch. We can get more of two things at the same time. So it's uh, least, least it's really worth thinking about. Yeah, one of the um, one of the best arguments I, I think uh, opposed to liberalized immigration is how it will affect these sort of broad economic institutions and policies. Like if they turn us our policies really badly, it will affect growth and maybe kill the goose that lays the golden egg. So we try to take a look at that with a journal article I wrote with uh, Ben Powell and Brian Murphy and a few other folks that got published in uh, Public Choice. Try to take a look at stocks of immigrants in the past in different countries and then what economic freedom in those countries did going forward to see if there's any kind of relationship, just to try to test the waters there to see what went on. And we found there's actually a positive uh, relationship. And we think that if there was this sort of negative effect, we'd see a decrease in the economic freedom score over time, but we didn't see that. So it turns out that uh, I think at best we can say there's no evidence that immigration at the levels that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years has any danger of killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Or even harming it. Yeah. Or it could even make it fatter. <laughs> Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University. Alex Narasta is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and with the new Cato iOS app available at Cato.org.